Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, Vijay R. Nathan. Today's episode is going to feature Jessica Hines, an award-winning writer, co-founder of the Jacob Kruger Studio, and founder of The Crash Shaman. She wrote the award-winning film Stranger at Home and Best Screenplay winner for The Mending Wall. She's been a finalist in over a dozen major competitions and festivals, and her plays have been developed and produced at theaters across the country. As a writing coach and story editor, Jessica has mentored thousands of writers, including Sundance award-winning filmmakers, Tony Award winners, best-selling authors, etc. She's built the curriculum for various theater companies and schools, including Playwrights Horizon and the Einhorn School of the Performing Arts, Ghana Yoga School, and the Jacob Kruber Studio. Jessica is currently doing research for upcoming books, The Neuroscience of Visual Storytelling, which we'll talk about later in the episode, and The Psychology of Characters and Their Creators. She is the member of the 2017-18 Artist Group, The Collective of the Y92Y. We'll be discussing um, writing and uh, yoga and the need to um, the focus on uh, combining the meditative path with your writing, with uh, her writing and with our writing, as well delving into areas of the human experience that are uncomfortable and, uh, and um, sometimes marginalized in the public narrative and the need for finding truth within our own journey, finding the human truth in our own journey, and uh, understanding how we can achieve a, a more fluid approach to craft. So please stay tuned for the full episode, and we'll start it now. Thank you. Jessica Hines, um, an author and a meditative guide. So uh, why don't we start off with the reading and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, your background and uh, journey through the years. Uh, so did you, okay, go ahead, let's start the um, All right, uh, I guess this one's just called That Face. <clears throat> that face, that little face so lovely, so sweet, such pure and immeasurable kindness behind the wreckage of burnt flesh and bruised eyes. I know that once I longed for nothing more than the extermination of that face, that hideous face, that mean face, that physical representation of the cruelty I once thought that you had. But oh, how images change, how physicals change, how understanding and belief in the seemingly immovable staples of this our simple lives. To know the seed, the seed that grew the tree, to know the water, the water that gave life, to know the soil, the dirt, the arms that held you tight or not, that pushed you up into the air. I know these things will change a face, to change the eye that sees the face, and suddenly the truth that there is no truth, no right path, that nothing here is wrong because we are all here not by choice but by force or chance, because a face might look so strange might resemble another twisted thing. I can no longer make you a monster because my own eye cannot see that you, my most beloved thing that makes me feel that I am home, though I have none. You are a child of the soil, the seed, the water, the sun, 
to hate you is to hate the world. Thank you, thank you. So, um, why don't we start off kind of discussing a little bit about your background and where you were born and how you came into this path? Oh, um, I was born in Northern California, um, in the middle, pretty much the middle of a cornfield. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, most people think of California as, you know, LA or San Francisco, but we, we pretty much um, lived off of the land and we had a lake in our backyard and we grew up bow hunting and, um, and yeah, and then the moment I turned 18, I was very eager to just run away to New York and become uh, a professional writer. It's all I really wanted to do when I was a kid. So can you go into more about that you were saying bow hunting, like was this a part of communal? Communal uh, living or? Um, no, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> Would have had some built-in friends. Yeah. No. Um, my family, we just, we were hunters. So, oh, okay. um, uh, you know, my stepfather who, uh, he, he poured concrete. You know, he's a one-man mm. construction crew. And he couldn't do that in the winter. And so uh, twice a year we'd go camping um, and we would, you know, be hunting for either bear or deer primarily. Mm. Some pheasant, quail, and caribou and stuff like that. Uh, and so, yeah, we would go hunting and then we would save the meat and that's what we'd eat in the winter. And we had a garden and, you know, fish from the lake. Uh, and, and, you know, and then my mom would make clothes or jewelry out of like the antler and the heel, the hooves and, and uh, the pelts. So I, uh, it's, it's funny now, it seems really kind of cool and, and, and interesting and living off land, but pretty much uh, I, I always thought it was like really lame growing up. <laughs> yeah, I think always when you're growing up, it's like your parents are not cool yeah. and you know, what your life is not the ideal and you always want to, I think for myself as well, it's always been for a lot of people, it's always been a chance to chase after something. So, um, so then you, uh, you moved to New York at what age? Oh, so I was 18. Um, I, I moved to New York uh, September 7th, 2001. Oh. Uh, um, and someone told me that if I wanted to get a passport really quickly, I should go down to the World Trade Center. And so, uh, Tuesday, September 11th, yeah. uh, I woke up and was like, yeah, I'm going to go to this place called the World Trade Center <laughs> to get my passport. And, uh, on the way there, I just saw a lot of people running forwards and I was like, hmm, yeah. what's going on? And someone's like, oh, plane hit the towers. Yeah. And so I ended up going back to school and, um, and yeah, that was kind of my, my first week in New York City was, was 9-11, and it was, it was a little bit surreal. Wow, wow. It's powerful. And then you, uh, so after that you became, uh, you went to graduate school, you said, or? Yeah, so undergrad, um, theater arts, and then graduate school um, for dramatic writing. Um, yeah, I graduated about, I don't know, 2010, I think. Yeah. Okay, really good. So now how did you start uh, the meditative path that you're on now? Um, well, it's interesting because I, and I think a lot of people meditate without realizing they're meditating because oh. that's, um, when I was a kid, you know, my household wasn't always the calmest place. You know, I was the youngest of a lot of kids and, um, we had a lot of animals and, uh, and so I would go out into the backyard and I would sit on the dock and I would just stare at the water and I kind of thought I was crazy because I could just stare and watch like the, the moon reflect off of the water for, for hours. Um, I didn't realize that I was meditating, but I'd do that, and then I would just write poetry to um, to process all of these emotions that I didn't really understand why I was having them, um, and and so so that's how I just started writing very naturally was by sitting and meditating again, not understanding that that's what I was doing, but 
Um, after 9-11, actually, uh, about a year after, I went pretty numb. And then a year afterwards, I, um, I just went into a really deep depression. Um, I had a lot of sort of, it just triggered a lot of things for me. Um, you know, and that's a lot of times where people who have chemical imbalances, right, when you're 18 is where they start to surface. So I started showing signs of um, a lot of social anxiety, panic disorder, um, bipolar disorder, mixed episodes, um, a lot of paranoia. Um, sleep, I couldn't sleep for like months at a time and I would, you know, I'd start to hallucinate and, you know, not see things very clearly. Um, and so I, uh, and eventually I tried a lot of different medication mm -hmm. um, and it just didn't really work. Um, I had a really bad, res like the medication they gave me to stop my panic attacks actually caused me to have a psychotic break mm -hmm. and like destroy my apartment, which I mean, mm -hmm. I don't remember. So my partner at the time had told me I did. Um, and then one, then one day I just, um, I lost my health insurance. Um, so I couldn't even afford my medication anymore. And I just thought, well, I better figure out how to manage my mind and my emotions and my psychology through something that doesn't require other people, um, you know, to give me, you know, other people. And so I started, um, yeah, I just started doing some research um, and kind of stumbled upon, started realizing that what I was doing was meditation, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so I started practicing that more regularly and then I started reading, you know, really got into stoicism. Um, I've always been, you know, philosophy minor, so that philosophy has always been um, a great thing. Uh, and then I started reading up on neurolinguistic programming, um, hypnosis, um, got into neuroscience and, you know, psychology and... And yeah, I just found, and, you know, and then, you know, eventually yoga as well, which has been extraordinarily um, amazing for managing mental health. Um, well, I'm so interested in your story is that um, it seems like, you know, the way you're presenting it, though, for some listeners, it may seem very academic, but it was very integrated into your specific situations, situation and your need to kind of confront your own, uh, your inner, inner uh, experience. Yeah. So sometimes it can come off as being like, I know in my own journey, you know, when we're telling the story, sometimes it seems like we're studying, but actually it's mm -hmm. integration. So yeah. just to clarify how you uh, kind of those practices that were more based in your own experience and such. Yeah. Yeah. I so. mean, yeah, because I mean, my 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 official education really is is in the arts. <clears throat> yeah. um, so all of this, everything I've read, you know, all of my interests in psychology meant that's all been extracurricular it's been me just yeah. you know finding the podcast and reading every book I could find and you know med practicing with as many different people as I could find um you know yeah I've, I've, it's, it has not been a formal yeah. um, thing at all it's it's really just been personally driven but um yeah and then and then I started teaching writing you know I mean I've been uh and I I was just like, I don't know, maybe this will work for other people. And maybe there's a way of, because I, I saw with a lot of writers that the note, the guidance they were being given was on their work specifically and on the mm -hmm. project. And I just saw this need for there to be more guidance for the writer themselves and the mm -hmm. artistic health of the writer. And, and so I eventually started integrating all that work that I did just for my own sanity um, into my approach to mentoring artists and that's that's just been the most amazing thing in the world that's uh being able to pass that on to other people and help people to 
help someone to maybe in six months go through what took me 10 years to figure out mm -hmm. is... So you went I mean, from, as far as the form goes in writing, you went from poetry to... You went from poetry to screenwriting or oh, chapter there? Or yeah, like, so I, yeah, I started yeah. in poetry, but I never... Uh, I never assumed that poetry was yeah. like a career. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I loved poetry and it was the first time a teacher paid attention to me and it was the mm -hmm. first time I, someone said I was talented, you know, writing poetry and it comes very natural to me. Um, and so then I thought, you know, eventually that turned into playwriting because I, I did love the theater and so I started writing plays. So I thought, oh yes, I'm going to be this great. I'm going to be the next, you know, um, Edward Albee. Yeah. I, uh, you know, except for not a, a dead white man right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and then I really had no intention of getting into screenwriting. I actually was not, uh, I would say I did not necessarily have a large amount of respect for the film industry. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a theater person, you sort of feel like that's selling out. Um, and then, yeah, this, I had director just saw one of my plays and said, I would like to turn this into a film. And I sort of just tripped backwards into the industry and then got offered another gig. And honestly, when I saw the paycheck, I was like, yes, I will get into screenwriting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I do really enjoy it now. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, but my heart still really does always belong to the theater and to, to poetry. So you're saying about part of your uh, journey towards uh, coaching and teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe you uh, co-founded the Jack jay kruber um, yeah studio. so yeah so uh, after graduate school um you know I, I always wanted to teach i always wanted to mm -hmm. mentor it was that was always more important to me than necessarily screenwriting and um i met jake and jake uh was like i want to build a school mm -hmm. and i was like awesome i've yeah. built curriculum for you know the i um espa um at primary stages and um at playwrights horizons when i used to work in marketing and, um, you know, and we, we just, uh, a lot of our beliefs about the industry aligned and both of us were people who really care about the, the student, um, and the writer and believe that, you know, the art and craft can be taught at the same time rather than just the craft. And so, yeah, I think that was about seven years ago. Um, and yeah, we've just built the studio from there and now it's got a little, we got a little space on 35th yeah. street. Excellent. 34th excellent. Street. Do I even know the owner's address? <laughs> <Yeah. of>, um, <laughs> well, I'll direct people to look it up. Uh, yeah, it's writeyourscreenplay.com. Yeah. Um, sure, it's sure. the easiest writeyourscreenplay.com. Writeyourscreenplay, yeah. Great, great. So I like I was mining your sites and such for different little phrases and little sayings you mm -hmm. have in there. And one of them that, that jumped out to me was replace judgment with curiosity. And I thought that was really interesting. And if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of pithy saying kind of informs mm -hmm. your... Uh, your approach yeah um, I think if there is one mantra that I've had that has absolutely changed rewired my brain um, and allowed me to be almost instantaneously meditative and mindful it is simply to replace judgment with curiosity I just think for um, if you know if you're struggling as a human being or if you're struggling as an artist specifically as well um, judgment when we judge something we we put ourselves in a fixed mind state which means we cannot grow and we cannot be open to things when we judge something it also separates us from that thing it puts us above it mm. and when you are above something you cannot have a true connection to it right it's just like a judge in a courtroom so 
if I judge you, I'm putting myself above you, which means I'm distancing myself and usually comes from a feeling of needing to be safe. Sometimes it's like this fear of being hurt or this fear of vulnerability. Um, but it, it's, it's disconnect. And like I said, it puts you in a fixed, uh, fixed mindset. Um, and so it cuts off creativity specifically for artists. Um, it cuts off the ability to learn anything new. Um, and so I found that I was a very judgmental person for a long mm -hmm. time. And, um, after coming home from Thanksgiving, I think yeah. I know where I might've learned it. Yeah. Um, and Thanksgiving but, is notorious for that kind of yeah. interaction where suddenly we, we start to see people we know so well mm -hmm. and then see them in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, but so yeah, I started, I realized I was a really judgmental person and I mm -hmm. instantly, like, you know, I would see someone on the street, you know, like I would see a homeless person. I would instantly think, Oh, like they're lazy. Right. Yeah. And I would see, um, someone, a girl in heels at 9am and I'd be like, <sighs> Oh, she's, you know, just out, you know, screwing someone. And, uh -huh. Not that that's a problem at all. Uh, um, <laughs> I call that the strut of pride, not yeah. the walk of shame. Uh, um, but, you know, and especially my own art, I would read something I'd written. And I, right after writing it, like literally 30 seconds after writing something, I would read it and I would immediately judge it. And I started realizing that I just wasn't getting where I wanted to go in my work. And so I would just keep saying replace judgment with curiosity. And anytime I noticed that I was judging, I would replace it with curiosity. And so if I, if I read a piece of mine and I immediately was like, oh, that's so stupid. Oh. I would then be like, all right, let me get curious about it. What makes this feel stupid? And, um, you know, then you, that would lead to something like me being like, oh, well, it feels, it feels like I'm trying too hard. I'm like, mm. oh, what, what's that about? And it goes like, I don't want people to think I care. Yeah. And so within three sentences of replacing judgment with curiosity, I realized this isn't about the quality of the work. This is a fear I have as a writer of being vulnerable. And, you know, when it comes to writing, like, you better be comfortable being vulnerable or, yeah. you know, you're not really going to be putting out the stuff that's going to, you know, reach people in the most effective way. And so I started to see my work really excel just by getting curious. And I started understanding that, you know, most of my feelings about my work had nothing to do with the work or the quality of the work or the execution. It was, it was all about me managing my, my confidence and my kindness to myself and my compassion to myself as an artist and a creator. Um, and then being able to apply that to, you know, just anyone else in the world. And especially when you start mentoring people. Yeah. I mean, I've heard horror stories of like what people have gone through with certain teachers, teachers who have told, you know, for students like, Oh, well you can't write that. That's too dark. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and I was just like, I never, you know, I'm so, I think to be the most effective mentor, I really, when someone brings me a piece of work, you know, I, I just, I, I can't judge it. I have to find, I have to figure out what's really going on underneath it and, and just staying curious. Um, yeah, it's just really easy. You just ask a bunch of questions until you feel like you, you understand what's going on. That's excellent. That's excellent. So you also have another one, uh, from asshole to awesome. I thought that was also great. <laughs> like kind of like the journey, I guess yeah. that's parallel. You, you kind of brushed across a little bit from the judgment it's kind of parallel track to yeah. going from judgment to curiosity from being someone who's judgmental to yeah. being someone who's excellent and awesome. Yeah, it's such a great uh, uh, ways of approaching these, yeah. these pathways, psychological process, you know? And then also on your uh, <clears throat> your website, The the Crash Shaman, 
you have a great a great picture of you in the meditative posture giving the middle finger mudra which i thought was really funny and great and really speaks to that narrative yeah. you know so if you could talk a little bit about how you uh started the crash shaman and um, um yeah i mean uh well really one of my writers uh, a very wonderful dear extraordinary wonderful human being who has gone on a similar journey of being a very angry and guarded person and was working very hard to become comfortable being vulnerable and kind and he has done a lot of work in South America and you know he one day just stopped me in the middle of our session was just like you're a shaman you know yeah. he's like this is what shaman do is they they go into the minds and the worlds of other people and they guide them on their journey and so I started doing research on shamanism and stuff and uh you know not full-blown woo-woo you know yeah. out, like i was like listen there are there are <laughs> shamans that are ta that are amazing that yeah. are like who've been shamans for like 50 years and their father's 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 father was a shaman and um the crass shaman is really this idea of the, the thing i love about meditation is it, it doesn't need to be precious or woo-woo and and yeah. so the the crass part comes from the fact that I am a foul-mouthed New Yorker, right? I curse <laughs> yeah. a lot. Um, I have a really caustic sense of humor. Yeah. And I just saw that the way that meditation was being presented and or marketed or branded was, I was like, I would never, Jessica Hines, messed up asshole, just judgmental Jessica Hines back in the day, would never go and like go to a meditation, yeah. you know? And I realized that especially in New York City, there's got to be meditation for the rest of us, you know, where my favorite mantra, and I swear, if you just wake up every day and you repeat this mantra to yourself for three full minutes, it'll pop into your head at the perfect time throughout the day. And that mantra is, there shall be no fucks given. There <laughs> shall be no fucks given. Excellent. And it's so this, just this idea of taking the essence of what a shaman is and modify modern making it modern so yeah, that like yeah. yeah so that like when you're yeah. when you're dealing with the g train you know yeah. and your crazy boss and you know like and your landlord um to make these ancient tools and skills really just accessible and easy to use and and fun mm. because if it's not fun people aren't gonna do it yeah. um so i think that that's kind of the why i stumbled upon because i was like i can't just call myself a shaman that doesn't feel authentic and then yeah. at first I was like irreverent and I'm like, no, that's not quite right. Uh -huh. And someone was just like, God, totally. Jessica, you're so crass. And I was yeah. like, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. And then I was, I always wanted to have a, a photo of me, you know, in the, the Lotus position, which is uh -huh. the funky cross-legged. Yeah. And usually, you know, your hands in like the chin or jhana mudra, um, which is very close to the flipping you yeah. off. And luckily enough, we were in Vermont and a wonderful um, photographer was up there and I was like, we're doing it. So yeah. I got a really great photo from it. So And that photo does kind of communicate all that in, the, in, the, in this quick shot. It seems to kind of communicate a thousand words, you know. But um, actually, we'll take a quick break mm -hmm. and then we'll come back. Uh, so we'll take a quick break for intermission and then we'll come right back. Thank you. Great. You're listening to the Truth to Power show. This is your host, VJR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. I just want to alert you guys that if you're enjoying this episode and you'd like to support uh, Radio Free Brooklyn, um, please go to radiofreebrooklyn.com backslash donate. 
This is a nonprofit organization and your support is very valuable to us. There are perks available for donating that you can find out about by going to readyforbrooklyn.com backslash donate, um, specifically the Patreon option. Uh, please check that link out and find out more. Also, you can sponsor this show as uh, hosts have uh, monthly dues that they pay and your support is very valued to me and this show. So please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash Truth to Power. There's a button for sponsor this show, and that would be very appreciated. Um, so now we're going to listen to a song by Guster, Endlessly, from their, um, from their album Evermotion, released in 2015. So please enjoy, and we'll return to our conversation with Jessica Hines in just a moment. Thank you. Let it slide 
right, so we're back with Jessica Hines, uh, author, um, writer, teacher, yogi weirdo, as they, <laughs> as I think it says in your site. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, very uh, strong self-identifier as weirdo, definitely. Excellent, excellent. So we'll do another reading of uh, something you, you like to select, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this, uh, this is a little oldie but goodie. Um, it's called Why You Should Pick Your Scabs. Um, <clears throat> I found you like an open wound agony moaning, twitching out into my skin, then screeching so loud and raucous that the pink stretched flesh around you burned with itch and itch, begging my crooked fingernails to tear away any attempt at healing, broken fingernails now with a purpose to bring you back, to make you red and raw and with me. I pick. I found you like an open wound on the back of my knee, so red and raw, I couldn't help but wish my whole body were consumed by you. I bent and opened my leg a thousand and one times more than usual, hoping that hideous mix of yellow, pink, and brown would not crust over, smothering you like an unwanted child. And when they came, like suited hunters, to patch you, smooth you over like wet cement, I will pick to feel your crimson roll down my calf like a virgin's tongue. The singe of my movements mixed with the sting of salty sweat is to me the most elegant form of affection. Excellent, thanks so much. So, um, one thing I know you're coming up with, you're researching now a book on the neuropsychology of a... Uh, yeah, so I've been working it's almost like I've been working on 10 books. Yeah. You start doing research for a book, you think you're writing one thing, and then a year later you realize that you've started 10 different books. And, yeah. and so eventually I will have a whole series. But mm -hmm. it started off really, um, I, just, I just noticed that the way that I wrote action was really effective viscerally, meaning that you know I, just the way that I, I put a sentence down on the page I just could see that like the reader just seemed to emotionally respond, even though the information in the line was similar to what someone else might write. And so I just started doing a lot of research um, into neuroscience. I've always been interested in psychology and neuroscience. And, um, and I just discovered, you know, this wonderful information about mirror neurons and, uh, you know, this, that essentially this specific that you can write action in a screenplay in a very specific way um, that actually activates the mirror neurons therefore um, activating the nervous system of the reader so that the reader of your screenplay can physiologically react to uh, seeing the film in their head rather mm -hmm. than just reading the script and so when you have a reader who is physiologically going through what they would if they were sitting down and watching your film the, their understanding of, of your script is, is, is stronger. And also my hopes is that, you know, if this, if this becomes more commonplace that we could save a lot of money, um, on screenplays that don't actually pan out. Um, mm. because there's a lot of just, there's between the, the screenplay and the actual film, there's so much, there's just such a divide between there that, um, right now it seems very difficult for people to look at a screenplay and to know, will this make a great film? Yeah. And so it started really just wanting to understand, you know, and, and studying evolutionary biology and neuroscience to understand the nature of dialogue. Like, why do we speak? Why language didn't develop in our brain until very, very late 
in human existence, um, you know, why? Uh, and so a lot of the, uh, when I teach dialogue, I teach it from that perspective of the reason that language even developed in the brain was for this, not for this. And so by defining dialogue in a specific way, um, we can just automatically be, writers can be much better at writing dialogue, which yeah. seems to be something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and then that kind of snowballed into, you know, just, yeah, like all this neuroscience of the craft of rewriting. Um, and, you know, then that carried into the work that I do in my meditative writing classes where, um, you know, how do we flip these, these elements on their head to look at really cognitive tools that we can use as writers, say like, when you have, you know, writer's block or when you, even though you really, really want to write, you somehow seem to avoid writing, just wanting to understand what was really going on inside the brain of my writers and how I could adjust those processes and what were these really just like really clear tools that I could pass on that could help these writers be able to sit down and write more effectively. Yeah, um, so that was like, yeah, that's like 10 books right yeah. there. Um, but yeah, so that was just, uh, uh, and, and now really, so now I have a first draft of um, sort of like uh, the, the science of the craft of hypnotic action writing, dialogue, scene structure, and, um, and theme. Um, and that I think is enough to be one piece. And then I'm also working on sort of more of a, a, a writer sutras, more of a meditative piece. Um, sort of a pulling from, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations is one of my favorite uh, books mm. to return to. And so creating something like that, that is very just, you know, small, these little maxims um, that are good for writers or creatives to interact with that help just help reorient your brain back to being a healthy and functional artist rather than the type of artist that treats themselves poorly or doesn't write very often. Um, it's so great to see the uh, synthesis of the science and the meditation and mm -hmm. the whole seeing ourselves as a whole whole being and and all the different aspects of human beings and all the different aspects of our experiences is important to integrate and I really appreciate that. Oh yeah, that I mean I it's yeah. it's so funny when you start studying when you start studying any side of it you really see how it comes around together um, that yeah. like you know meditation is about being present and and returning to the self and knowing the self and when you start getting into the sciences of psychology and neuroscience it all comes back to that knowledge of the self it's it's almost the way that if you if you push hard enough and you study character story and theme and structure uh, actually if, if you really push hard enough on all those things they become the same thing it's it's almost like a, a six-sided die mm. right a, a dice where you realize yeah. that you know it's just a different angle of the same exact thing and you know, that to me, it, it, it is, that's why I love yoga so much when I found yoga, because yoga means to yoke, which means to bring together. And, you know, yoga is not about physical yeah. exercise yeah. primarily, like yoga is about meditation, about this idea of um, unifying the, you know, the internal self with the external world so that you have this feeling of complete connection. And I feel like that is applicable to academic pursuits and to writing and like even as a writer like to become one with the character mm. as you're writing them so that you're not treating your character like a puppet you're not yeah. yelling at them what to do um, but a lot of time yeah in the meditative class we do a lot of good exercises where we we step into our characters and we feel our bodies as if they are the character and we feel the emotional needs of that character so that we can write from the most authentic place that we can rather than thinking of ourselves as separate 
right? And me being like, I am writing this story. Um, it really becomes this place of the story writes through me, which is great because you don't have to make any decisions yeah. if you write that way. Like yeah. once, you know, but I, I would tell my writer, I'm like, this is easy. Like you do a meditation, you become the character, you let them take over and you just, your hand goes, you don't have to make any decisions. It's, um, I find it much easier. Yeah, I think also one of the titles I saw in addition to visual, uh, the senior science of visual storytelling, and then mm -hmm. also the psychology of uh, characters and their, yeah. and their authors, yeah, I yeah. it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a fun one. In the master class, I started, I thought it would be one class, and then I realized that, I was like, oh, this would be 10 classes, is just breaking down the psychology of a character. And when you break down the <clears throat> psychology of a character, essentially you're able to break down your own psychology. And, yeah. and there's a lot of really cool... Um, you know, we talk about like Jungian shadow work, um, which just mm -hmm. comes from anything that's repressed inside of your character and then how that manifests through like anger, humor and dreams, um, all the way up to um, like implicit bias tests, which is, you know, our unconscious biases control us a lot more than we think and our behaviors more than we think. And so there are there are tests that you can even do online um, to test like let's, you know, consciously like are you do you have a bias against women in the sciences and most people would say no of course women are just as capable of men in the sciences but then there's a test you can take which will test whether or not unconsciously you actually do have a bias that mm. women are less effective in 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 um uh, in this world of stem and so we you know just from doing that with my writers and we we do those exercises as as artists um to understand ourselves and what our biases are and then we also take them as our characters to see you know, what is your character's unconscious bias towards these things? Um, and so that's been a really awesome journey just because, again, I, I do want to, I do want to put something out there that helps people to write their stories, but I don't, I do think that helping the author with the artistic health is, is most effective. And so I feel like by giving them what they want, you know, I can also sneak in what I want, which is for most people just to be the best and most connected version of themselves because then you know you will be a better artist if you are healthier and I think there's this this terrible myth and this romanticism of the depressed suffering artist the tortured artist and it is bullshit yeah. um, it is it, you know a lot of people I know they say I don't want to get help I don't want to get you know because I don't want to get healthy because I feel like then I won't write as well um, and I can tell you that that feeling of what's going on with the writing when you're really, really unhealthy and suffering mentally, um, it's kind of like when you write drunk, which I don't mm. recommend for anyone. So when you drink alcohol, it numbs the part of your brain that's really judgmental. <laughs> and so it's not that you're actually writing better. You just feel as if you're writing better. Mm. And that, you know, that's, uh, it really doesn't actually help your, you know, your work in that sense. And so... Um, you know, and I, I did romanticize that for a while. I was like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm an artist. And, you know, I mean, like, no, when, when you're, when you've attempted to kill yourself more than once, like, that's not you being an artist. That's you refusing, you know, like not getting the help that you need. So I found that, uh, once I did get healthy, I, using these meditative techniques to connect to the still very dark and sad parts of myself, getting healthy is not getting rid of all of your demons and getting rid of all of the darkness and becoming this happy, happy sunshine. Hell no. Um, it just means you're functional. It just means that you can visit your dark side whenever you want and you can leave that dark side when you want. So sometimes in the meditations, yeah, I will lead my students into a place that's a bit darker inside of themselves, a place of loss or a place of, of you know, torment or of 
um, you know, being stuck and not able to forgive. But we always, after the writing session, do a meditation to come back out of that. And um, so, yeah, if, if there's one thing that definitely I could tell that like, you know, doing yoga and practicing meditation and eating healthy and taking care of your body and your mind in that way will only help enhance your artistic abilities. Um, it may not feel like it at first, but uh, it definitely does. And also, more importantly, it makes you someone who people actually want to work with because mm -hmm. you cannot make art, you know, as an, as an island, you know, especially the film industry. It requires so many people. It requires such a large community to be successful in that industry. And that's really what the asshole, the awesome was, yeah. is about for me was that I was so miserable as this tortured artist. And the only thing I cared about was being a professional writer that I wasn't working on building community. I was only working on building myself and my mm. career and no one wanted to work with me because no one wants to work with a bipolar, suicidal, you know, miserable asshole of a person, you know, even though my writing was good, people were like, we like your writing, but they're like, I don't want to spend three months with you. You know, you seem like a disaster. And so when I did start to heal myself and when I did, and it takes time and it is, you know, not the easiest thing in the world. But once I found that place where I, I liked myself, I liked who I was, that I was artistically and mentally healthy. Um, it was almost immediate. It was just, it was crazy how quickly I started getting work. Um, and I really did. It's like, it was like six months later, I think I got my first paying gig that, you know, for someone who grew up in, in a very, in an impoverished world, like, I think, I think I made more money in that gig than I had in like the past three years of my entire life. Um, and it was really validating that to know that, you know, that hard work paid off. And, um, and so, yeah. So, um, that's great. That's <laughs> such a great story. And I think that, you know, I was on a similar journey. I was diagnosed bipolar at 18 yeah. and then it took me like a good, like few years, number of years before I was able to get into a stable career and, mm -hmm. and get myself together yeah. and such. So I definitely appreciate that journey and the, the need for, uh, guides like you who come out of that journey to help people yeah really and, appreciate that and I, and just to say a little bit because if there's anyone out there who has been you know I'm also uh, dyslexic um, also you know some people have said very you know ADD um, these are not brain disorders I really yeah. don't like thinking of them that way um, and you know I think they're brain differences yeah and there are some people who, you know, who like, there are people in my family who suffer from schizophrenia and they, they need to be on medication and they, they need to be very cautious. Um, but for those who are on the spectrum just of general depression or periodic depression or, you know, um, lighter on the bipolar side or dyslexia or anything like that, um, there are ways to manage it that doesn't feel like it's deadening yourself because, mm. you know, like, being dyslexic is great for me now, even though, I mean, I have to send everything out to be copy edited because yeah. I can't even spell my own middle name um, without looking at my driver's license. <laughs> but people with dyslexia, dic, <laughs> dyslexia um, uh, have, um, we, we have stronger pattern recognition. Yeah. And so when you're writing a screenplay, so much of structure is trying to find that pattern. And so I, you know, and that's one of the things that helps me be a really good mentor is I can see the patterns in, my students writing um, a little bit quicker than anyone else. And if anyone is interested, um, there is a book, um, I think it's called The Different Brain or The Brain Different, um, I wanna say uh, Gail Saltz, 
or Saltzman. I mean, I should look it up, the real one. <laughs> yeah. um, I always post it on the link. So. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, it's just a wonderful yeah. book that breaks down everything from, you know, dyslexia, ADD, bipolar, schizophrenia, autism. And it tells you about these brain differences and how the brain works differently, mm. but also the benefits to each of them in a creative capacity. And then workarounds and ways to manage it so that if you are someone whose brain is on a little bit of the different scale, you know, you can feel excited and proud that there are things that it allows you to do more than, you know, someone with a normal brain. And then also ways to try to manage it so that you can still function and be a healthy individual. But I just wanted to put that out there because I, I, I read that book this year. It just came out and I was just, it was just really validating to know that like, I'm not a disorder, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, yeah. and, and there are some hard things to manage that, you know, my highs are much higher than most people. My lows are much lower and it can be debilitating at times, but, um, you know, I have a plan in place for when that happens mm. and, and how to manage that. But I would never want, I would never want to get rid of it, honestly, because I do, I do feel like it, um, it's allowed me to be the person and it's allowed me to go on this journey, certainly, which I think I'm very help grateful for because, um, you know, I don't think I would be able to teach the way I can teach if I didn't have to work so hard yeah. to, you know, manage my own mental health. Yeah, we had a previous guest, uh, Alan Avadano, author of The Other Son, who's a friend mm -hmm. of mine for 25 years, and he ended up becoming a mental health counselor. And uh, he kind of gave his very similar perspective on mental illness as mm. being, uh, being a, on the, you know, that we think of it as uh, uh, an illness, or he, he talked about it as being part of the norm of human yeah. experience. So. It's very interesting to, uh, I call that one the holiday episode because he, he talked about his journey towards atheism. Mm. So I noticed that in your, your own story, you have the, uh, you were part of the Amoralist Writers Club. Uh, oh, you yeah. talked a little bit about kind of how that resonates with you or what was the journey oh, for that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been working on my teaching and my book and I realized that, you know, I had neglected my, well, I've been doing a lot of screenwriting, but I, I missed theater. And so I was like, I got to get back into theater um, but the plays that I write are very challenging, I think, to a larger audience. You know, I don't think I've ever written a play where someone wasn't either raped, murdered, suicided, or a combination of all three. Um, and so I was like, I was like, I definitely want to get into a writing group. I want to, you know, be working with a theater company. Uh, but all the other theater companies I've worked with before are just too mainstream. It's just like, we want to play where a bunch of people sit in a living room and, you know, talk yeah. about the rights to the deed to the house or a bunch <laughs> of stuff that, you know, middle class people or upper yeah. class people have to deal with that. I was like, I'm not writing about that shit. Um, <laughs> I was like, I want to write about the darkest, most twisted yeah. elements of the human soul. I want to write about the things that our society is most repressed about. I want to write about what is consent and do it as a fairy tale, um, you know, in a way that, makes the audience laugh and then immediately feel horrible for laughing at that subject matter. I just, I'm very interested in pulling out the Jungian shadows and, and just, and, and creating a safe environment for people to look at the most repressed parts of themselves. Um, and so I was like, who the heck's going to want to work with me? And then I was like, wait a minute, the Amoralist theater. Um, so the Amoralist just being, you know, uh, they, they, you know, I, I sent in my word, we talked and, and I was like, you guys, if you, if you invite me to be part of, um, this writing group, I was like, I'm going to write some really dark shit. Like I'm going to challenge what you think is appropriate. I have been fired multiple times just for the subject matter of my pieces. Um, like at one point in time I was fired 
well, well, I was hired to write this piece about the intersection between sex and death. And then when I wrote about <laughs> necrophilia, like everyone was shocked. And, and apparently the Uber, you know, Christian producer didn't want to work with me anymore. And I, I was just like, so there's a woman sleeping with a corpse on stage. Right. Um, it's really lovely. Really piece. Off for that one. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, so yeah, like another, you know, I just it's and so many times where people are just like, well, we didn't think you'd go that far, Jessica, yeah. and I was like, yeah, I will, uh, I will go, uh, I will push the boundary as far as I possibly can in my yeah. writing, um, and so they were like, bring it on, and yeah. Um, and so yeah, I spent a year working with them and and got uh, two beautiful new pieces out of it, which was really wonderful and just a great you know, re-entry into the theater world, which then led me now to working with the 92nd Street Y. Um, and they're um, this amazing group of artists called The Collective. It is, there's 10 to 13 of us, and it's we're all sort of hybrid artists that are looking to do like the next thing. Like we're looking to take live performance to a place that it, it just isn't yet. Um, and I've never been so inspired by, like every every artist in this group is just phenomenal and a lot of like dance-based stuff, which, you know, as a writer who sits on her ass all day, not mm. moving, I just appreciate yeah. so much and just challenging the idea of, you know, what is process and what is product. And so I pitched them. I was just like, I want to, I was like, I'm interested in merging my meditative work with live performance. And I'm like, I'm wondering if using all of this research, I could create a theatrical piece that was meditative enough to rewire the neural pathways of a brain in regards to emotional intelligence. Um, and, and they were like, that sounds amazing. And so once a month I get to go in and, and just play and it's like a, it's like a lab, it's like an incubator where I'm just testing the, the different percentages of live performance compared to meditation and, and then how they respond. And, um, and so, yeah, that's just been a really amazing experience. Uh, and yeah, like I said, the artists I'm in there with is just like, you know, I couldn't ask for a more profound group of people who are, you know, definitely going to be changing the way we view live performance in the next couple decades. So amazing. And I love the way you have such an ambition, not just beyond, beyond the scope of just know the arts but rather integrating in with the human experience and that what you were saying I think communicated to me that you wanted to be more the the viewer not to be passive but rather mm -hmm. to be very involved in a kind of dynamic way mm -hmm. with the materials so that they're kind of like being they're receiving the impact of the the content as well as the presentation the form in which is presented in yeah so just to kind of digest yeah i mean it's because well i mean it makes sense for me because i'm like what are the two things i love most which is mm. teaching which is shaping the minds of the people in front of me in a live context and mm. you know in theater and mm. so yeah i mean i don't know i don't know if this will work yeah. i mean i might you may check with in with me in a couple of years <laughs> and i'm like nope nope this yeah. doesn't work but um yeah i think that I think that every, any time you put a piece of art into the world, you are changing um, the unconscious narrative of our country. Because, you know, they think about how Disney movies, you know, in the 80s and 90s shaped a woman's mentality of what, you know, and a man's mentality also, of like, like, like a man being like, oh, I have done good, I receive now a wife, right? And a woman mm. to be like, oh, I am beautiful and I am helpless, therefore, you know, come and save yeah. me. And so, you know, I tell my writers this, but, you know, all the time too, even if you're writing a thriller, especially if you're writing a thriller that people are going to watch over and over again, 
you're telling a story to the unconscious mind of the person watching that. So you mm. better believe in the theme that you're giving them. You better understand how you're changing the brain of that person. And I don't have to agree with it, but you better agree with that truth that you're giving and that narrative, that story that you're putting in the mind of that person because they hear that enough, it's gonna change their brain. You know, the brain is plastic. It, it is capable of moving and rewiring itself at any time. And so just having that in mind and, and really starting my writing is me just screaming and complaining about life and being poor and family um, and really moving into thinking about art as, you know, I'm not a politician, you know, and I, I'm not the richest person in the world and I can't, the, but the way I can help to allow this country especially to be a, a better version of itself is, you know, the, the message I give to people when I teach and the message that I put out there with my work. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought there to take that on is like, I'm going to take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that's kind of shifted what I do in my writing that it's still dark and twisted, mm. but in a way that I am hoping will be, will build compassion and going back to what you first said, the replace judgment with curiosity, the piece I'm working on is, you know, inspired by, um, you know, the author of Alice in Wonderland, who has been questioned as possibly being a, a pedophile. And not to, I am not saying that those actions are good or that we should support those people, mm -hmm. but I do think if there are a number of people who have sexual attractions that we as a society, society believe are wrong and we need to protect a certain part of the population. And I think that the way to stop this from happening more often is not to start pu just punish people but to understand the nature of the attraction yeah. and so the piece that i am working on is this is really getting curious about watching someone's journey as they the first time they realize they have a sexual attraction that is completely taboo mm. and watching them go from therapists to self-help group to dominatrix to all these different things trying to figure out am i a monster um, and it really is, it's actually, you know, the therapist is this <laughs> smoking fat man who's yeah. like, who are you? Right. And yeah. the, and the tea party, Mad Hatter tea party is the, the self-help group full of nuts and the, the dominatrix is the queen of hearts. And, yeah. um, and just, you know, I don't know, I, I'm still at the very beginning stages of yeah. it, but just, I'm wondering if if by going on this journey with some of it, putting the audience in a place of like, what if one day you woke up and you found yourself aroused by something that was really scary. Yeah. And um, again, not to say, to condone the behavior that some of these people take, but to understand the nature of, of what's going on psychologically. And then by, through that understanding and that curiosity, you know, is there a way to you know, stop those actions before they happen. Yeah, so I think through empathy you can find, mm -hmm. uh, through understanding that these are not, you know, these are human beings and that people have, are part of the human experiences. Yeah. And that to understand where the, the root is and kind mm -hmm. of confront that. And also, like, one of the conversations I had uh, previously with Tejas Desai, who was, uh, I was talking about the publishing agency and that institutions want to create a kind of norm, a kind of discourse or a kind mm -hmm. of way of speaking about the human experience that's very much standardized and in this interview as well, we kind of went over kind of the ways in which the um, 
the people are the the writers are subverting the narrative in order to understand the human experience so i think that's a great place yeah. to close out on so it was a very interesting conversation <laughs> thanks so much thank you thank you this ends the sixth episode of the truth to power show if you'd like to be a guest on truth to power show please write to truth to power show at gmail.com also feel free to follow me on facebook at vjr nathan poet or on twitter at truth to power show and that's uh truth number two um power show in case you were wondering what book uh, Jessica referenced, the name of the book is called The Power of Difference, The Link, the Link Between Disorder and Genius by Gail Saltz, MD, published in, uh, published in March of 2017. And I'll close out this episode with a reading from Escape from Samsara, a poetry collection that I published in 2016. You can find copies of this book on Amazon and all other online distributors. This specific poem seems to speak to the themes of this episode. I want to share it with you for that reason. It's called The Two-Way Mirror. She gives birth to a cat under full moon of placebo night sky. She's one out of 300,000 women who gave birth today, allergic to imaginary roses, sneezing fruit and peppermint drops. I imagine all the escalators transport unknown state secrets to strangers creating a relay race with vanilla folders of frustration and rage. The doctors map neurological cobwebs. Red light stands over protective covering of mucus that shields the neurons pattern to firing. The doctors inject alternatives into her brain while rabbits sleep in a time-free environment. I know the atmosphere will improve. I realize that to understand this, I have to drink hard liquor and think sideways. Our affair had been a blessing that helped us chase earthquakes in the rain. Falling desert grains mark off the moments during a period of isolation. I orchestrate the rhythm that occurs when time is lost in order to facilitate my bare-knuckled self-transformation, cultivated with the fly-in-the-wall vantage point and a touch of self-deception. This organization will make changes, insiders only, please. She's nodding off, so pleasant among a group of sleeping pigeons, feeling that deep, dark delta sleep filled with ignorance and bliss. you and hope to have you as a listener in upcoming episodes we air every thursday at 9 a.m and rebroadcast the following week please check the schedule for more information on radioforbrooklyn.com thank you this closes out the truths of power show mm-hmm.